I am with Ryan Clotier. He is the principal security consultant for Security Studio. And I feel like your bio has a lot of S's in it that is going to be very challenging for me this afternoon. He is an experienced IT cybersecurity professional with over 15 years experience developing cybersecurity programs for Fortune 500 organizations. Ryan is a virtual chief information security officer for K-12 districts across the country and is a certified information system security professional. He's proficient in cloud security, DevOps, SecOp methodologies, security policy, process, audit, compliance, network security, and application security architecture. So basically everything. Ryan also co-hosts a weekly security podcast and is included on the top 100 most influential people in cybersecurity. I will include some links in uh, the show notes, but Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, me too, Heidi, and I really appreciate you having me on. Um, you know, I, I love the title of the podcast, you know, human-centered, you know, security, I think is so uh, relevant in today's day and age. So I just appreciate being here and having a chance to talk with you. Well, thank you again. And start us by start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work. Curious how you got into security. Yeah, uh, you know, getting into security for me was um, kind of a, an evolution. It was organic, if you will. Uh, I had worked a, a variety of different IT jobs. Um, you know, starting out life kind of on the support desk. Um, doing that, uh, I had got into software development um, and worked as an infrastructure engineer, software developer, architect, so on and so forth. And and as I did those various roles, you know, security was always kind of a theme. It was a thing that would pop up. In the early days, you know, security was really focused on the network. And so as I was doing, you know, application development, you know, I'd bring up these concerns and everybody kind of look at me funny and what is this? And um, you know, and I, I always found myself being the one to advocate for, you know, hey, a bad guy could could do something with this or, you know, this could be compromised this way or that way. And, and so it just became a natural progression um, to wind up doing security as a full time role. And, you know, lately what it's been is is my passion for helping out uh, K-12 schools and, and kind of underserved uh, populations and communities that really accelerated um, my, my focus on, on doing, you know, kind of virtual CISO work and some of that more higher level security work. So it's, it's been an amazing journey, but it, I think it's all rooted in, I have a passion to protect people. And this is one way in which I can, can fulfill that passion and, and serve a greater purpose. Yeah, that's, that's really heartwarming to hear in an industry that, you know, can be very challenging and frustrating. And, you know, it's something it's a theme that I hear a lot with the people I talk to as part of the podcast. Like it's all it's like a common theme of and it's why I got into security as well. Like I have a set of skills. How can I apply them to something that I'm really passionate about? Really want to help people. I hate seeing people, you know, suffer in this way. Hate that things are not usable around security and, you know, don't want to see people get compromised and, you know, have to deal with the after effects. So it's really a nice, a nice theme of us security folks. Well, I like to think that information security has very little to do with information or security. It's really about the people. You know, we're protecting information. That information belongs to people. If those people didn't get hurt, 
from the loss of that information, there wouldn't be much work for us to do. So I love the, love the people, you know, focus uh, as we talk through this today. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's the first thing that I want to talk about is the human side. So when we initially spoke, we talked about some of these human challenges that I want to kind of elaborate on and, and talk through with you. You know, first is the idea that like we're hardwired to conserve energy. Like we kind of naturally want to be lazy. <laughs> and and that that inclination sometimes gets us into trouble. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's you know, it's it's a leftover relic of our of our biology, right? So as you and I have, have talked about this, as human beings, there are some things that are still inherently in our biological makeup, things that you know, um, drive our, our subconscious decisions, you know, things that we don't necessarily put a finger directly on and say, that's the driver. And one of those, uh, as I started to unpack why we have such a fascination with convenience, why convenience is so um, alluring and appealing to humans, in my research, it dawned on me that that's, that's actually because we're hardwired to conserve energy. So if we think about our, our primal existence and beings, you know, as we were, you know, tribal people, hunter gatherers, you know, kind of going back in the time machine there, pre-technology, pre even pre-industrial revolution, um, it really was about conserving energy. And so that leftover artifact, if you will, is still in our in our minds. And so as we look at challenges, as we look at problems, we're always seeking the path of least resistance. We're seeking to get the greatest benefit for the least effort. Um, and, and we do that sometimes to our peril. We do that sometimes without fully understanding the gravity of that convenience, that decision we make. Well, it's just easy to do it this way. And then we find out later that while it may have been easy to do it that way, it's really bad. You know, I'll use a, an old analog example. Uh, before the invention of the internal combustion engine, gasoline was a byproduct, a waste product of the manufacture of kerosene. And the solution, because it was convenient, was to dump it into the river. And so now we had, you know, literal thousands of gallons of gasoline being, you know, just dumped into our waterways. Um, that was done because it was convenient. Right. And then as we learned, obviously, later on, that's bad. Um, but I think, you know, it's interesting that in the world of information security, we're at the very beginnings of understanding some of this. And so, you know, working hard to manage that convenience factor and make sure that we're really thinking through those those impacts of those actions and decisions i think is becoming more critical every day yeah and i see it from the perspective of like the individual you know making i don't know maybe like the parent making choices about how they're using their devices and how their children are using their devices and then i also think about it from like the organizational level i think a lot of times organizations just want this like quick fix and they feel like, you know, if I just press the button and I feel like I'm secure, then I am secure. But often that's that's not the case. It's all kind of like smoke and mirrors and they, they're, they're, they haven't actually yeah. done the hard work to to be more secure. Well, and, and sometimes, you know, we have a saying for this. It's called security theater. Right. right? right. A lot of times what we think of as security really is is just for show. And, you know, that's where, uh, and you know this from talking to me, I like to talk about it more from a safety perspective than a security perspective. Security is kind of one of those ethereal things that's hard to wrap your head around. Mm 
Um, safety is, is a little more basic. Safety is something that we all kind of get. And I think one of the challenges that we face as an industry is we use a lot of language that doesn't mean anything to anyone but us. Yeah. And so as we're building these bridges within our businesses, within our communities, as we're trying to build these bridges to say, you know, we need your active participation in order to keep things secure. I'm finding it's more beneficial if we say we need your active participation to keep paychecks safe, to keep you safe, to keep your family safe. That tends to get a higher response of participation than, than please take this really boring security awareness training that you're going to forget in 30 seconds. My, my favorite Bruce Schneider quote, my favorite Bruce Schneider quote is uh, complexity is the enemy of security. And I think we're we're there today where because of the convenience factor, right? So back to that trying to conserve energy because of the convenience factor, we've just continued to layer things on top. Uh, and we did so thinking it was the easy answer, but we didn't realize we were building this complex web that is actually far harder to manage to secure to keep safe than if we kind of take a step back for a second and really look at what we're trying to do versus just slapping another fast, quick, easy thing on top. I think that the, the 25 years in this business, we've, we've done a lot of slapping things on top of other things, but never going back and revisiting the foundation. And so, you know, some in this industry would describe it as a house of cards. Uh, Bruce Schneider just came out with a new book, um, Click Here to Kill Everybody, I think is what it's called. It's mm -hmm. a very it's a great book. <laughs> yes, it's a great book. But the idea that safety is is going to be like the only word that we associate with security because as things become computers, you know, more and more everyday things become like actual computers our lives are potentially going to be at stake. Like, so it literally is about human safety and the potential for lives lost. And I think we are just rapidly getting, you know, rapidly getting into a place in time where that is going to be the reality. And the implications are very frightening. Yeah, you know, I want a self-driving car too. I just wanna, I wanna know and be sure that we've done enough to make sure that that can't be used against me. You know, I have a, a vehicle today. It's not smart. Uh, I'm in control. Yes, accidents can happen. Things out of my control can happen, but I control the vehicle unless I have a mechanical failure. My concern is that if we don't start to shift to a safety based mindset, that it won't be too long until somebody comes along and decides they want to cause a, a you know, a, an accident on the roadway. And they're able to, to access this self-driving car because it's on the network and it's poorly secured and then, you know, cause devastation and, and the loss of human life. Um, you know, it's hard to think about those things, but I believe it is the job of every security professional doing this work to think about and advocate. And so as you're working in these companies and the, this really cool new invention comes along that could make the world a better place. Make sure you're asking tough questions about how could it be misused? You know, one that comes to mind that's a growing concern right now is smart medication. So this is, these, these are pills that are actually computerized medication delivery systems that you ingest inside your body. So, you know, imagine the ways in which that could go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and it was never designed with security in mind. It was designed with delivering medication in mind. 
And so I think, I think we rush a little bit to adopt these new technologies without fully understanding the impact uh, that it could have if it was misused. The other thing that you said that was really interesting to me is the idea of like activating this awareness in people. So, you know, we talk about security awareness training all the time, but really like what is awareness if it doesn't drive behavior change, but kind of, I can't exa remember the exact words that you're, you were using, but basically it's this asking people to participate in this greater good like everyone needs to be a part of this in order for it to be successful. You, me, security professionals, everyday people, you know, the people making these devices, people making, um, you know, the, the scenario that you were just talking about, everyone needs to be a part of this and everyone needs to be thinking about this. And if not, it, we're just setting ourselves up for failure. Absolutely. And I think the, the key there is we have to make it personal. So if I'm going to ask a human to do something different in their day, something that even if it's not inconvenient, if it's different than what they normally do, and especially if it's inconvenient, and a lot of times the things we ask people to do from a security and safety perspective seem inconvenient. We have to find ways to make it relevant to them as an individual person. Uh, traditionally, we have taken a, well, we're protecting the company's data approach. Well, that's cool. I mean, I know I work here, but does that really have anything to do with me? That's not my data. It's the company's data, right? And and so what I do is, is and I coach a lot of different uh, leaders, you know, in the, in the industry, um, and I provide, you know, some counseling to some to CISOs and others. And I always start off with asking them on a personal level. How are you keeping your family safe from cybercrime? And the reason I do that is because if you can't answer that for me, then you're not sure how you're keeping your business safe from it either. So it's about building that personal connection back to the circle of care in our lives, those that we care most about. What are we doing? What habits are we doing uh, to protect them? You know, another example is I'll, I'll be talking to a parent. And I'll say, you know, are you comfortable with your child chatting uh, online unsupervised? Yeah, I'm okay with that. And I'll ask that same parent. So you, are you okay with your child going to an inner city park at night and talking to strangers? No, I'm not okay with that. Well, what that parent doesn't understand at that moment is those are equal dangers. And letting your child chat online un, unsupervised or without proper guidance is as equal of a danger to your child as letting them just wander the streets at night and talk to strangers. And once it's put into that context, not as to be not to be scary, right? This isn't about fear, uncertainty, and doubt, but it's reshaping the message into a context that makes sense. And they say, my gosh, I didn't know that. I didn't know. So many of us don't know. We've invited these devices into our homes, into our living rooms, into, you know, it's an extension of ourselves. You know, we're all low efficiency cyborgs now with our with our smartphones. And because we're not having that conversation that says it's more than a toy, it's more than a tool, right? It's it's I like to think of smartphones and computers as being like power tools. So a, a power saw is a very helpful tool when used correctly and safely. It is incredibly dangerous when misused or used inappropriately. And so it's, it's, it's breaking it down to their level of care, their level of understanding. I'll give you one last example on this because I think it's so important. 
I was giving a talk once and an old man, uh, older man in the audience at the end of the talk said, well, I don't, I don't know why I sat through this. I don't have any Facebooks. I don't shop online. I have nothing to be worried about. And I asked that guy, I said, well, do you have any grandchildren? And he perks right up. He says, yeah, I got a, I got a little granddaughter. She's my whole world. And I said, do you want her to have a safe and successful future? He says, yes, I do. I said, that's why you have to care. He says, well, why did you start with that? <laughs> why just start with phishing and links and clicking and Facebook and all these things that mean nothing to me? Why didn't you start off with, I have a role to play in the protecting of my grandchild and the promoting of a safe and healthy, happy future for her. And that was when it dawned on me that we, as an industry, we have to shift our language. We have to take time to get to know what our people care about. And it's not what we care about and that's okay. Right? Um, you know, for years, we've tried to make them learn our way. I think it's time we stop that and we start to learn how to work with them. What do they need from us? How can we better support them? How do we design better products and services to help secure them? Um, but it all goes back to starting with that personal relationship. Yeah. I mean, from it's, it's understanding your user. Right. Or, you know, understanding the person that you're talking to at that at that point in time. So I'm going to go off of that. Um, like I'm I'm reading over my my notes here and kind of had a, having a battle with this bullet point. Um, this idea about about. Computers kind of like being this other world where nothing bad can happen. And the reason that I'm struggling with it is that I've done a ton of research around how people operate in the digital world. And most of my research, all of my research up until this point has has pointed to the idea that the digital realm is simply an extension of our physical world. We don't we don't really separate the two. So, you know, our expectations of social norms and, you know, things that should happen are very we just take our physical world and we, you know, plop that into the the digital realm. And when our expectations aren't met, you know, we get upset and we get confused and we don't, you know, know what to do. But when we were talking, you know, we were clearly talking about how, about trust and how, you know, it's the computer is almost like a television. That's the other, I think that was the, the example that you used, like the computer's a television. It's another world where nothing bad can happen. So I'm trying to, my brain is just like trying to reconcile these two, <laughs> like kind of conflicting things. Cause I feel like they're both true. So I'll, I'll let you solve that one for me. <laughs> yeah, so they are. Um, so, so here's what's interesting is, is you're absolutely right that the way that we use the technology is as a direct extension of our physical world. Mm -hmm. The difference that I've detected over the years of, of kind of pondering this and observing, because it's one layer removed from us, we don't get the same sociological or physiological or psychological triggers that we do in our real world. And the lack of those triggers are what allows certain dangers to exist or certain things to happen. I'll give you an example. We've all been on Twitter and we've all been to the comment section. Definitely not people being their best selves. <laughs> we've all been to a grocery store. Very few of us have ever experienced people behaving in the grocery store the way they behave on a Twitter comment section. It's that anonymity. It's that one layer removed. I don't have to see your face when I say the awful thing about you or to you. 
And that physical thing is what prevents it from happening. It's not that people don't have these terrible ideas they're sharing. They do. They came from somewhere. But they're less inclined because in the real world, if I'm going to say something awful to you, I have to do it to your face, which means I run a couple of risks. I run the risk that you might not like what I say and you might react to it. So I'm not going to take that risk or I run the risk that I'm going to see the damage that my hurtful comment caused. And so I'm less inclined because I don't want to see it. Um, another example is we've all seen videos on the Internet of something awful. Maybe it was a car accident or an explosion or or some you know traumatic thing. Um, but we can see these things and we're like, oh, that's awful. But if we were to see those same things in real life in front of us, we might actually need some therapy because of it. We're going to have a physiological response. Uh, the same is true when it comes to online digital danger versus physical danger. Online danger does not trigger a physiological response. You don't get a tightening of the chest, a shortness of breath, a increase in perspiration. But in real life, uh, if you've ever been too close to the edge of a cliff, if a semi-truck has ever passed you too closely on the highway, you felt that. And so I think the big disconnect is, is that we are using the digital world to conduct our day-to-day -day lives, but we're missing half of the feedback loops that we need to be able to navigate it safely and sanely. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. Um... I, you know, and I think we do have uh, physiological reactions to things that happen on the internet, but I think you're right. They're not, it is not the same thing as if you were about to get run over by a truck. Like, obviously the severity and the reaction is probably going to be a lot different, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and that, that ties into the third point that I wanted to talk about, and that's the delayed consequences. And that's a huge problem for humans, whether we're talking about the internet or not, or we're talking about the digital realm or not. We don't fully grasp what the long-term consequence of social media is. We don't fully grasp what, how, how certain bits of information can be used against us. There's a lot more to be uncovered, but I do think there's a delay. And part of that is, is we're, we're creating this technology without fully grasping how it works, how to use it, how to use it safely. Um, and we're not 100% sure what could be done with it tomorrow because that thing hasn't been invented yet. And I think in the physical realm, we're pretty comfortable with what risks are and what, you know, to your health example, right? I, I have a lot of data that says if I keep eating the way I'm eating, I'm going to need a bypass at some point. Uh, I don't have a lot of data, though, that says if I keep using the Internet the way I'm using it, that there's consequences on the horizon. Great points. And and you're getting us into our, our ne the next topic that I want to talk about, which is perfect. But let me just summarize, you know, kind of the three points that we were talking about. First, the idea that, you know, we're hardwired to conserve energy. Um, that makes us lazy and we have to account for that. That's just how humans operate. Might as well work with humans as opposed to against them, against their natural inclination. The second thing that we talked about was the idea of like the two separate worlds. So like the physical realm and the digital realm. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a disconnect in, in terms of people thinking of the digital realm as just like another world where nothing bad can happen. And then the third thing that we talked about is the idea of the delayed consequences and, you know, because 
humans just tend to operate a little bit more, a little bit better when, you know, the consequences are immediate and they can see the immediate impact of their actions. Uh, we tend to behave a little bit better as opposed to, you know, when we, we don't see those consequences for a long period of time. So with that, I would love to move into the idea of accountability, which is something that we talked about before. Um, you know, talk to talk to me about like what what do you mean by accountability when it comes to information security and any examples that you have would be awesome. Yeah, I think the accountability piece really is rooted in uh, a question that I get a lot, which is you know who who's accountable for this, right? When when a security disaster happens, the first thing everybody wants to know is who who's on the hook. Right. Uh, and if you ask a CEO, they're going to point you down the hall and say the director of security. And if you go down to that director of security office and say who's responsible, they're going to point you back up the hall and say CEO. And there's that disconnect. Um, you know, there's a lack of accountability from the manufacturers of technology to make sure they're doing things securely. I, I think of IoT manufacturers, those are the ones that come to mind most, right? So, hey, put a smart camera in your house. Okay, well, is it securable? Well, we never thought about that. We just wanted to get a camera in your house. Hey, put a smart baby monitor in your kid's bedroom. Yeah, is it secured? Well, we didn't really think about that. And so they're building technology that in a lot of cases can't even be secured. And so I think there's an accountability to those that create the products and services of our digital world following a safety standard that we hold them to for things like our refrigerators, toasters, and, and microwaves. I mean, can you imagine if you bought a microwave and they're like, so there's like a 70% chance that this microwave will explode at some point in its life. You would go, well, why would you make that? Why didn't you do more to make that like a 0.01% chance, right? And and the, the, the sad answer is, is today because they don't have to. Because today there's no requirement like there is in the physical world that they take time to build it securely by design or that they, they meet certain consumer product safety standards. And this is incredibly important when we start talking about smart medicine, we start talking about smart vehicles and other smart things. I, I just read an article, there was a, there's a smart oven um, that is being sold today and somebody decided to hack into it and turned all the ovens on to 600 degrees preheat. That's super dangerous. That yeah, could have yeah. burned someone's house down. We've got smartphone chargers that can be set on fire uh, by passing remote commands to them. So I think there's a lack of accountability uh, on the manufacturer side. I think there's a lack of the consumers knowing what they're the questions they're accountable to ask. Questions they would ask about other things. You know, you put in a. a smart fence for the dog, you're going to ask questions like, will this electrocute my kid too? Right? You're going to ask certain questions. And I think there's a, a lack of that happening. And I think in the business world, there's a lack of understanding that the person who should be accountable is the board, is the CEO, is the highest person in the organization. So I just, I think there's an overall lack of accountability. And the last piece I'll touch on about accountability is, um, again, back on the consumer, you know, uh, I give a lot of talks and I'll, I'll ask the audience, you know, how many people in the room have gotten a new bank card and the majority of hands go up. Yep. I got a new bank card or credit card because of some scam or fraud. And I say, well, what behaviors have you changed since then? And they say, well, I didn't because it was taken care of for me. 
So it's a lack of, of taking accountability because of a belief that it's someone else has it under control for you. And I think that's a misnomer. I think it's very dangerous uh, for us to continue down that road. And I think the only way that we change this, this paradigm and this conversation is by focusing back on the accountability piece, accountability from businesses to protect data and employees, accountability from technology manufacturers, product and service manufacturers to produce products that are less able to be compromised. Um, and an accountability on the consumer to ask tougher questions about the technology before they purchase and implement it. Yes, I have. I think I have two follow up questions on that. The first is, and this is just because I, I really just have no background in this. Why? How is it that these manufacturers, so like the oven example that you used, right? Like they have to follow certain standards to make sure like the oven doesn't blow up, you know, with, without a computer, right? So is software just like not a part of these standards? It's, is it just like something that's so new that just hasn't been, you know, put into the I don't know, the the check the checklist of things that they have to, you know, make sure is safe before they ship it out. And that's exactly it. It's it's because the software piece of it is kind of an afterthought. Nobody, you know, when they do a product safety standard, they do things like does the heating element stay within a safe range? Does mm -hmm. the door properly seal if it's a gas oven to prevent any, you know, um, noxious gases or things properly ventilated? Uh, but it, they don't say, well, hey, we made it so you can set the preheat with your smartphone. Did we do enough there to secure that? Um, it really is the software stuff, the smart stuff, if you will, is generally an afterthought and doesn't fall under the same regulatory uh, rule set as the rest of the appliance does. Yeah, so then it's like, who's accountable for that? Like, it, it, it has to be the regulators, you know, telling these manufacturers they have to do that. And I guess probably part of it is the consumers demanding that as well, right? And that's what it is. It's that combo. It's kind of that combo platter of we as a society need to step up and, and ask for these regulations, you know, really draw the topic into the light. But I also think that, you know, consumers need to be better educated. Now, I will put all that responsibility back onto the shoulders of information security professionals because we are the ones that are supposed to be helping our business leaders and helping our friends and family and those that are consumers to get that education. It's not something they're just going to magically discover on their own. They're going to need our help. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think a huge challenge is is shifting mental models. And, and here's my second Bruce Schneier quote from Click Here to Kill Everybody. He says, you know, you certainly don't shop for cars and refrigerators as computers. You buy them for their transportation and cooling functions, but they're computers. And that's what matters when it comes to security. Um, I talk about mental models all the time and people kind of their eyes glaze over. Um, what Bruce Schneier says is this, the same idea is that there's a disconnect in terms of the consumer's mental models and the people who are creating these products' mental models. Uh, and, you know, IT professionals, uh, security professionals' mental models, because we kind of just take this stuff for granted. We know when you buy an IoT device, you have to think about security. When someone goes and buys a TV, they're buying a TV because... They want to watch shows like they're not buying the TV and thinking about security, um, you know, and they're just hooking it up to their network and, you know, turning on Netflix. So but de mental models are some of the just from a UX perspective, some of the toughest things to shift. 
Um, so, you know, we have a big challenge ahead of us, not saying that it's not a, you know, something that we can is insurmountable, but, you know, I think if, if us as, you know, people on the tech side can understand, like, this is a huge shift for people, like you're literally asking them to shift their mental models and that takes time and it takes a lot of education and it, it's going to be very frustrating for you. <laughs> but I think if we can come from that perspective, like, we'll, like you said, we'll be, you know, that much more successful. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of that is, it goes back to something I said earlier. It all starts with a conversation. Yeah. Mental models, if you if you tell somebody you're doing it wrong, you're starting off at a disadvantage. <laughs> you you got to take time to go, hey, let me let me actually learn a bit little bit about what's important to you. Because it might be like that old man story I said. I don't care about Facebook. Stop telling me about that. That doesn't matter to me, right? To get him to change his mental model, I had to connect on a, on a very personal level on something that he had a strong passion for, which was his grandchildren. And when I did that, I was able to then get him to a receptive state where new information could be taken in, in the context of being important and valuable to something he cared about. I think that's the best quote I've heard in a long time. <laughs> if you're starting off with you're doing it wrong, <laughs> you're already at, an, at a disadvantage. But that, I mean, that's so perfect. And I'm laughing because, you know, I'm I'm kind of an outsider, you know, looking in on this security industry. And that is sort of, you know, kind of the impression that I get. And it makes it very intimidating because it's just a bunch of folks being like, you're doing it wrong. That's not how you do it. Oh, no. You know, and it, people don't want to talk to you when you talk like that, you know? And they, no, and, <laughs> and we've, we've turned people off. You know, IT as an industry has really turned people off. Uh, think about all the jokes about, you know, IT support. And I know in, my, in the early days, I had to train some folks on changing their behavior because what they would do is they would show up and fix it for the user. And the user become very frustrated because they go, I don't know what they did. They just moved the mouse a lot, clicked a bunch of stuff, said it's all better now and got up and walked away. Right. And so I never learned what went wrong in the first place, what I could have done to fix that. And so we ended up, you know, instead of making an ally and a friend and increasing their capability, because it was just easier for us to do it for you than, than to take the time to explain it, we missed that opportunity. Fast forward doing that for 10, 15 years, now you've created a culture. And, and so I think we, we have to go back to that. We have to go back to let's, let's take time to have those conversations to get them to participate, not because we want it, but because they want it, because they have something they care about that they're trying to protect. Absolutely. So going back to accountability, you know, uh, you know, this isn't a a shift that's going to happen overnight. It's not like we're going to snap our fingers and all of a sudden all of the ovens are going to be secure, right? (laughs) It's a slow, gradual process. What can we do to make a difference in the meantime? I think it starts with what can you do at home? Mm -hmm. What can you do within your sphere of influence, whether that's at the workplace, whether that's at the family dinner table, if you start there, you begin to make change. You begin to affect. Um, there's, you know, I forget what the stat is, but there's there's well over a million security people worldwide. 
Uh, and if you're familiar with the concept of six degrees of separation, we are no more than six people away from everyone. So if you tell two people and they tell two people and so on and so on, it's uh, I'm going to date myself here, but there used to be a TV commercial for a shampoo uh, and it'd say, oh, and I told two friends and they told two friends and they told two friends. Well, by before you knew it, by the end of it, the whole screen was full of people. So I think it's just find a couple of humans in your life. Uh, the other thing you could do is volunteer for your K-12 school. They need your help. So if you're a security professional listening to this today, contact your local K-12. They desperately need your help. Donate an hour or two of your time. You will make a huge difference in their world. Uh, it won't take much time from you. And, and to be honest, most of the schools I consult after an hour-long phone call have about six months worth of work to do. I so I think if we do more of that, we can accelerate the change. That's wonderful. Any additional parting words or advice? Uh, I'll just say this. If you're, if you're new and you're looking to get into this industry, don't be discouraged by those ridiculous job requirements. Apply anyways. And I'm going to speak specifically to the female listeners right now. Don't worry about the job description matching 100%. It's not going to be the job you do anyways. Go ahead and apply anyhow. Uh, too many times I've heard uh, people say, oh, I didn't apply because I wasn't a perfect match. Don't worry about that. If you think you're 20% a match, go ahead and apply. Um, that's going to help you out if you're getting started in your career. And, and don't be shy to use some old tactics. Uh, for example, if you're sending resumes and you're not getting anywhere, do a handwritten letter to the hiring manager. You'd be surprised how quick you get a call back because you did something that made you stand out. You demonstrated that you really wanted this job. And as one who hires, I can assure you, I'm more interested in the people that really want the job than I am interested in how well they can do the job. Obviously within certain limits, but I would take a less experienced person with a strong passion to want to learn and grow over a very seasoned person any day of the week. And I have uh, I have links that I'm going to include in the show notes. Um, so securitystudio.com, the securityshitshow.com, by the way, if um, you're interested in this stuff, you will love the security shit show. Uh, it's one of my favorites. But is there anything else you'd like to promote? Uh, I would encourage everyone to take your S to me. So Security Studio, uh, because we want the world to be a safer, better place for everyone, have made available at no charge with no marketing, no one's gonna send you any emails or sell your data or anything crazy like that, a free personal risk assessment that will help you be better at protecting yourself at home. If you're a security professional, take it. I promise if you're honest with yourself, you're not gonna score as high as you think you will. And if, you're, if you have non-security professionals in your life, put this in their hands. This is going to help them to learn those behaviors and habits to keep themselves safe at home and to protect themselves from cyber criminals. And we'll put the link in the uh, show notes, but it's s2me.io. Yes, that's one. I, sorry, I forgot to include that. But yes, I will put that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you, Brian. This was so much fun, and I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me today, Heidi. This has been a blast.